Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm the lesser spotted on The Bunker Daily, Naomi Smith, returning to cover an important issue facing working women. The pandemic has revolutionised the way we work. Over a third of us have worked exclusively from home over the past year, while the likes of HSBC and JP Morgan have wised up to office costs, announcing permanent home working for some staff. But not everyone's a winner. Many work in jobs or have home lives that mean working from home is simply impossible. And those of us who can apparently undertake as much as twice the unpaid overtime of other office workers, with women disproportionately impacted. Others, including our own civil servants and parliamentarians, are being pushed back into the office or face potential pay cuts. To discuss all of this, I am delighted to be joined by Maya Jayabraba and Rose Lasko-Skinner from Demos, who have just published Distance Revolution, a report all about how COVID has caused a revolution in homeworking and what needs to happen next. Maya and Rose, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Hi, Naomi. How are you both? And more importantly, where are you? Are you, are you still homeworking? Are you recording together separately? So it's a very good question. We're we're very hybrid today. So I'm working from home, and I'm in the office. So well, there yeah. we go. That the future is here, um, <laughs> and 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 I too am recording this remotely rather than in uh, bunker towers. You've touched on this, but but how has COVID changed the way you both work? It's a really good question because I think a lot of it is still TBC for us. Really, I think we're in a transition between going full-time remote, which was obviously very different to what we had previously, um, to now looking to the future and trying to work out what works really for us. And your report looks at employee experiences of working from home during the pandemic. Talk us through who you spoke to and, and what your sort of key findings were. Yeah, so that report, we sort of really wanted to focus on the national picture of what working from home had sort of meant for employees. And so in terms of who we spoke to, we, we, we did an open access survey where we reached over 11,000 people and then a further 20,000 person poll. And so really the kind of the main findings were actually looking nationally at sort of what people's experiences had been and the implications of working from home for people on their well-being. And, and what we found was that for those higher earners, working from home really was associated with improvements in well-being. We found people were statistically more likely to see improvements in their eating habits and see their stress levels reduce if they had also been working from home during the pandemic. The big question mark, though, was actually what lower earners, what their experience had been, given that actually our, our sample was quite small of lower income earners. Can you just define high and low income for our listeners just so they've got a feel for where that threshold is? Yeah, of course. So higher earners in this case, we're sort of more defining as anything over a household income of anything over £30,000 a year and lower earners being anything up to £20,000 per year. And we've heard horror stories about 
call center staff being monitored via webcams while working from home. Presumably they would have most of them fallen into that that lower income bracket. Did your interviews unearth any unexpected findings? Yeah, so um, we actually came across it in our research where there was kind of one participant whose manager had installed webcams on everyone's laptops. And as you can imagine, most of us were shocked, but not all. I mean, whilst I believe it's a complete invasion of people's privacy and a reduction of autonomy, the participant themselves was actually quite unbothered by it and had somewhat accepted this is how remote working is and will continue to be. So it's definitely a mixed bag. So some prefer it as it helps them to have a presence and alleviate some of the anxiety they face whilst working on difficult tasks, whereas others are completely opposed to it. So again, as with a lot of the remote working strategies, we kind of see this as something that has to respond to or be based on employee needs and preferences. So we're actually currently doing some research um, looking at the impact on remote working on low income earners. And you know, as you as you said, like we expect this to be one of the impacts that they face. But yeah, it's to be published in late autumn. And I suppose for some young people entering the workforce, they may just know no different. It may have been their first experience of working. And and so they sort of don't really have that benchmark. Now, you mentioned a word there that I'd like to uh, interrogate, strategy. And this might seem like a, a very basic question, but we've seen conflicting answers and actions. Does the government have a strategy on home working? Can, can you define what their position is for or against? Yeah, I think this is a really, really good, good question. And as you say, I think it's incredibly unclear at the moment what the sort of the government as a whole's position is, as we've had quite mixed messages. We, you know, this time last year, the Chancellor was encouraging a lot of us to go back to work. Whereas we've also had, you know, the Equalities Minister and the Labour Market Minister come and defend flexible working. And I guess, you know, for us, the the sort of the big question mark is, I think, you know, while the government are in, in favour of the outcomes of, of flexible working, like increased social mobility, perhaps, or gender equality, actually, when it comes down to it, whether they're willing to legislate for it and take it on as an actual policy area is, is seems to be very uncertain at the moment. One of the things that has come out of the pandemic is this homeworking thing and lots of employers changing their minds. Um, so it seems a shame for government not to be kind of capitalising on what is one of the very few silver linings of a pandemic. I want to touch on a couple of things you said there. So first off, we heard in March the Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak, saying that employees will vote with their feet and leave jobs where they're, quote, forced to work from home. Do you think he's been surprised that his kind of big bang 2.0 back to the office and back into the city has kind of fizzled out and that actually both employers and employees haven't <laughs> uh, been aligned to his way of thinking back in the spring? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a good question and it's hard to say as I'm not in his mind. But, but I, I think it, at the moment, I think it's difficult for us to sort of predict because we're still in flux and, I, you know, just a, a few days ago, there was another announcement that one of the things that might happen over the winter in terms of kind of stopping the spread of the virus might be back to working from home again. So so I guess these things are sort of, you know, very much changing and, and, and are a moving target. And so in terms of sort of what the future is going to look like in terms of people going back to the office, I think we are uncertain on. And is there a difference between flexible working and home working? The two phrases seem to get conflated and be somewhat interchangeable. But to my mind, flexible is different to homeworking, no? 
you're, you're completely right. So homeworking, or also referred to as remote working, as we speak about it today, it describes any type of work that doesn't have to be performed in the kind of traditional office space. Remote workers can do their jobs anywhere, including their home, a co-working space, etc. Whereas flexible working is a way of working that suits an employee's needs. So for example, having a flexible start and finish time or working from home, all employees have, or at least should have the legal right to request flexible working, um, not just parents and carers. And you're so right, it's important not to conflate the two. Flexible working, I believe, is currently available to all on request. But during the pandemic, as Rose said, remote working was one of the few silver linings. But we should also see how... We also see how home working benefits more middle class people. Mm. So what we need, as we've said before, is a strategy that en- enables the entirety of the labour market to have the option to work from home without lowering the standards of the other aspects of their lives. Another recent report has come out, um, not from you guys, but from Autonomy. And that's shown that COVID home working has created what they call an epidemic of hidden overtime, essentially unpaid labour. Did you uncover the same sorts of things or do you have a view on on whether, you know, some call it more productive, (laughs) perhaps the employer sees it as more productive. Actually, from the worker perspective, it's about having to do even more for the same pay. Yeah, definitely. So our data suggests that this epidemic of hidden overtime is happening with both who we've spoken to and what comes up in our surveys. So we've seen that working parents often did longer hours during the pandemic as they kind of bore the brunt of the childcare responsibilities at home, especially as childcare services were reduced, if not completely halted during the pandemic and the lockdowns. But it's really a mixed bag because working from home during COVID is very different to working from home now. So in the sense that it's not a lockdown, people's social calendars are starting to fill up. They're revisiting old hobbies, which means they're structuring their days differently. During the pandemic, they had very few opportunities to do much else. So it was very easy for our 5pm cutoff to become 8pm. And even worse, in the winter when days are shorter. Mm. On the other hand, homeworking saved people hours of their time commuting. So to really unpack hidden overtime, you need to kind of do, a, I guess, a cost-benefit analysis, which is something we're actually looking into. You talked about high-speed internet being a prerequisite for remote working. And I don't think any of us can deny that tech has invaded our home lives uh, over the last two years in a way it hadn't previously to, to the same extent and has really helped with that blurring of the boundaries between work and home life and as you say when you can switch off and, and when stop time bleeds into a much later stop time. Um, uh, sticking with autonomy they've actually drafted legislation that would create a legal right to disconnect and it's based on a French law that stipulates employees do not have to take calls or read emails related to work during their time off. Do you think that's the sort of thing that, that could fly in the UK? Or is that sort of seen as a, a little bit too authoritarian to legislate for that? I think it's a really, really good question. I think it's something that we're definitely looking at at the moment internally in terms of, you know, what the best way is to protect people from unfair sort of remote working conditions. I think it's kind of like what we might expect is a similar pattern where we saw a kind of boom in self-employment where, you know, lots of people were very excited about the additional flexibility, but then found that, you know, actually a lot of this was involved a lot of risk transfer of people actually being a lot more responsible for a lot more of their things than they weren't previously and a lot more upfront costs, for example. 
And men, many of them weren't um, eligible for self-employment income support if they hadn't been uh, self-employed for long enough and, you know, yeah. lost out on things like furlough support. So actually ended up having a very tough, tough lockdown. Definitely. And I guess, yes, you know, what we what we were sort of worried about is actually that, you know, for low income groups who maybe don't have the kind of the financial capacity to just move into their spare room and set up an office or buy a laptop to work remotely or indeed upgrade their broadband so that they can get a better internet service, that these costs will actually have come at a sort of a, another cost for them that will have to come out of their pockets from somewhere else, like their food budget or their bills. It's terrifying. It and, and when we think about the housing crisis and how that interplays with this and how many particularly, not even actually that young people, you know, you can you can have people well into their 30s and 40s still in the situation of having to rent in a, in a house of multiple occupancy where maybe the living room has been turned into a bedroom and they have literally therefore had to work in their bedrooms for over a year. And the mental health impact of that, I think, probably has been underestimated. I'm really keen, though, to move on and talk about the gender issue of all of this, um, because there really does seem to be conflict among the cabinet. Um, You touched on it earlier. You've got people like Liz Truss, who's much more in favour of flexible working. And then, you know, obviously, Sunak telling everyone they need to get back to the office. Do you think we might be seeing the Conservative Party itself split along gender lines? Yeah, I think it's a, a really good question. Like, I guess my reading is it's more sort of split along kind of goals and ideology and positioning cabinet than necessarily gender. And it just so happens to have a sort of gender slant on it mm. in the sense that you've got a chancellor who just wants to see the economy get back to normal and wants to see sort of city centres survive and, and in London in particular. And then you've got other agendas which want to see, yeah, the equalities piece be better responded to. And so I think that's the sort of tension that that you're seeing there. And then also the question of of whether flexible working is something that the government should be involved in a lot. You know, a lot of conservatives are very much of the opinion that that sort of the government's role is in public services and, and not necessarily around employer and employee relations. So if women choose to work at home more than men because we still live in a patriarchy and therefore uh, caring responsibilities and household responsibilities do tend to be still imbalanced in, in many um, households. Is there a risk then that women who take up that offer from their employer, whether it's public or private sector, could make them seem less visible and therefore overlooked for promotion. You know, can this actually, while it can be seemed as an empowering thing to, you know, enable a better work-life balance, particularly for working women, come with that risk of them maybe they're not being able to climb the career ladder because they're just not as visible around the office as their male counterparts are? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's already that risk, isn't there? So historically, we've known that the research already suggests that people who have worked from home in the past or work part-time currently have seen fewer opportunities for promotion. And then on top of this, in the UK, the female-dominated industries, they kind of bore the brunt of the lockdown restrictions. So this already paints quite a worrisome picture. So then this paired with the lack of visibility for women, especially in the media and advertising, it can hugely stifle their opportunities for promotion. And, you know, working from home, they might be excluded from those workplace conversations that their presence is very much needed. So we can't usher this enough, but what's needed in place to provide protection for women's development opportunities is a better accommodative 
flexible working arrangement. Absolutely. And so many of those decisions and, uh, you know, hiring and firing issues and who's going to be on which project team kind of get sorted out in the social interactions at work and the pub afterwards and things like that. So, yeah, my, my fear is that women are going to be ever more overlooked for these things if um, if they are less present in the office than men. And in that vein, um, Labour MP Tulip Sadiq has proposed a flexible working bill. Uh, She did that back in June. And she said that all jobs should have a day one right to flexible working and that it must be a right for all rather than a perk for the few. Is it possible? That's my question to you. Is it could could we get the private sector to swallow that kind of uh, legislation coming from government? Absolutely. I think a lot of the time it's kind of reminds reminiscent of the minimum wage where people think, oh, no, you couldn't possibly do this. Or, you know, lots of examples. It'll just lead to unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas flexible working is, if anything, a thing about inclusion and about making the labour market more dynamic and enabling more people to join the labour market because of flexible working conditions, making it more appropriate for them. I mean, we've heard from people who are able to up their hours because they can fit their childcare around flexible working. We've got something like 2 million female mothers who want to return to the labour market. And especially where we have a high vacancy rate, I think the idea that flexible working is too bad for the private sector is is completely redundant. I think we'd actually argue that legislation should go further and be flexible by default. I think if you sort of want to see the benefits of flexible working, like, you know, I think a lot of people are very excited about the possibility of flexible working and levelling up. And, we know, the the Welsh government is really leading it on leading on this and hoping that they can sort of improve their overall employment rates through flexible working. And I think if you want to see stuff like that, then you need a legislative framework that really enables it. And things like flexible by default could really go a long way to change those things quite quickly. And we've seen today ONS stats that vacancies are a a, a pretty record high. So in terms of retention, if you want to keep stuff, then offer them this stuff um, as as a great retention tool. Sorry to sort of labour autonomy, but they have done some good work on this. Um, Women are 43% more likely than men to have taken on extra hours beyond the standard working week. And they suggest that this puts women, particularly mothers, at risk of or at greater risk of negative health impacts and mental distress. Have you also found this to be the case in in your research? We haven't sort of personally looked at that in our research in terms of how much more women are working overtime, although we, we will be. And so it will be interesting to see whether it kind of matches up, given that our research will be a little bit later after the restrictions have changed, especially during the pandemic we saw sort of women doing a double shift really where where they were looking after children and home education alongside trying to work remotely and often helping shielding grandparents and and taking food to them or doing the groceries shopping for them and it, i guess this is the thing it always comes back to this sort of policy area is where women can win and lose quite heavily and there's sort of not a huge it's quite a big gap in between the winning and the losing Indeed. I spoke to Caroline Lucas, MP, and Miata Farnbuller earlier this year. She's she's the CEO of the New Economics Foundation, and that was on our main panel show. And we were talking about the UK Parliament Women and Equalities Commission report that had highlighted how government policies during the pandemic had repeatedly skewed 
towards men. We, we've touched on this a bit, but talk to me about how you see women having been disproportionately affected by working from home and the government policies that you know have discriminated against women during the pandemic and what should they be doing about it? Sure. So, I mean, even before the pandemic, women were doing what sociologists describe as the second shift or like a double shift, right? So where they complete an inordinate amount of household and caregiving chores after they finish their paid work. So the pandemic, if anything, has made these things worse since much of that infrastructure that helps alleviate those tasks, so schools, daycare, elder care, cleaning services, it's all been off limits. And as you said earlier, the result of this is that women are more likely to now feel burnt out than men. And this has hugely negatively affected their experience of homeworking. What's more is that women have been left out of conversations in the physical office and it's, they're made to feel like they don't belong. So when we then consider the intersectionality of all this, the impact on women of colour could be greater. They can often feel greater pressure to work more or feelings of otherness, which ultimately may even push women out of the workforce. So in that sense, the lack of services available for women to access to kind of cushion the effect of remote working and Mm. the policies that have been put in place need to be, I guess, bolstered more and have more funding put forward to them. Well, this has been sobering indeed. So wrapping up and and, and finally, um, what does your remote working strategy recommend? What should I as a CEO be doing to support my staff and particularly my women's staff? Yeah, so I guess our, our remote working strategy was very much aimed at government, first of all, just to have a strategy in the first place mm. where flexible working is promoted through legislation to make sure that people can access remote working fairly, but also to make sure that employees are protected from unfair remote working conditions. So, you know, like we were talking earlier about people being surveyed unfairly in their home or um, having to pay upfront costs that kind of actually mean that they take home less pay, but also sort of making sure that remote working is kind of integrated with other agendas. And, you know, as we were sort of saying earlier as well, that we found that people working remotely can improve their diet by working remotely. And, and that's quite an important finding for a government that wants to tackle obesity. And so I think it's kind of linking up the dots and having a sort of systems level approach. And I suppose if, if you're a CEO, it's a similar thing of making sure that your staff are sort of able to have that conversation and feel comfortable to say, oh, this is how I work best and this is how I want to work remotely. But also making sure that that kind of fits around other well-being agendas and, and, you know, thinking about when you go back to the office, if you do at all, how you can kind of fix some of those things that were a problem before. So maybe maybe have lots of unhealthy snacks in the office. This is something that we've <laughs> been trying to do. So we now have a healthy option snack as well. <laughs> But yeah, it's these little things that actually could go a long way. And, you know, another thing is actually a lot of people saying that workplace culture was actually really white and middle class dominated and wasn't an inclusive space. And actually under remote working systems where people weren't going to the pub after work, actually, they began to feel way more inclusive. So how can we kind of turn that back on its head as you go into a more hybrid operating model or indeed back to the office or indeed never back to the office how can those all kind of begin to tie together those wider things that we want to see in people's lives well I can promise you I have not installed spy cams on my staff (laughs) (laughs) nor would I want to (laughs) um thank you both so much where can people find your report if they want to know even more about all of this 
www.demos.co.uk. Brilliant. Maya and Rose, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bunker. Thanks so much for having us. It's been great. (laughs) Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And remember that you can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast for details. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>